All right. So, hi, I'm Alex, and this is Six Seasons and a Podcast, the podcast dedicated to having conversations with the writers, the crew, and the cast of the hit comedy community. It's a very special episode this week for a couple of reasons. Uh, once again, I have a co-host. Uh, Matt uh, is joining us. He is from the community's Twitter fan account. He's been a really important part of the community uh, fandom and has helped keep the community flyer keep on going um, in between our seasons and the ultimate movie. But uh, I wanted to give him a chance to be with me while I talk to one of our heroes. So, uh, Matt, welcome to uh, Six Seasons in a Podcast. Well, thank you. Hello. All right. So the real reason this episode is very special is that uh, we have an awesome guest. Um, you know him from Mythic Quest, and you know him from DuckTales. What you really know him as uh, from community is Abed Nadir, Mr. Danny Pudi. Thank you, and welcome to Six Seasons in a Podcast. Thank you, Alex. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, all the <laughs> community fans out there for keeping our show going for so long. It's uh, pretty awesome to be here. Well, we, we're really uh, thankful for it. So uh, I'll start off with, um, you know, one of the interesting aspects of doing these interviews is I uh, just recently talked to Megan Gans a little bit a while ago. And, you know, there's some great overlap. You got to uh, you're continuing to star in a, a show called Mythic Quest. And Megan is a writer and a co-creator and a showrunner on that. Um, what was it like reconnecting with her? It was pretty special, you know. So after we had finished uh, community, we wrapped up community, you know, Megan was a big part of that experience. Uh, I had, uh, just a tremendous amount of respect for her. And I think she's hilarious and just a wonderful, wonderful writer. So when, uh, Mythic Quest came around, uh, she actually sent me a text, uh, saying, Hey, there's this role on this new show that I'm working on. Would you be interested in coming out and taking a look at it? And so I said, um, yeah, <laughs> it's coming from Megan Gans. That's um, already um, uh, that invitation is um, it already is, you know, it's vetted and uh, it just means a lot. You know, anything she's attached to, I'm just, you know, I was like, yes, yes. So so um, and the show is really special. It's this collaboration between Rob McElhaney, Always Sunny, their team and Megan Gans, the co-creator and it is this world behind the scenes of a video game company. And I got to play a role completely different from Abed, which was also very appealing yeah. to me. Um, more of a, almost, I would say, probably more similarities to Jeff Winger in terms of yeah. character profile. So that to me was really exciting. And so I connected, reconnected with Megan. And yeah, now we've been working on the show. We had just started our second season before the quarantine, but it has been a really, really special experience. I think the show is such a wonderful, warm, funny, insightful group of people that I'm working with, and it's been uh, just been really a fun ride. I've been recommending it to everyone. It has the humor and emotion of community. I just think it's it's really it's a great ensemble. Poppy's great. Um, Rob's great. You're so great in in your kind of evil character. No, he's not evil. He's uh, he's definitely uh, self uh, self centered. Is that a, a better way to describe him? Yeah, I think so. He has. Uh, <laughs> I think I. He has his own reasons for doing things, like everyone else. I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's some there's some really great episodes uh, that's uh, kind of focus on that as well. Um, well, let's talk about the new episode um, because it's it was uh, very unique in in how you um, put it together. You know, so how did you pull off this quarantine episode? Yeah, I think a lot of that goes down to Megan and Rob 
having vision to actually do this. I think our show actually works for um, this uh, type of format. You know, each of us are actually working from home. And so I think Rob and Megan had approached Apple asking them to see if we can film an episode um, entirely in our own residences. You know, we had already filmed one episode of season two. And so we were already in the middle of the season. We were in production when the shutdown happened. And I think that there was a, uh, I guess some characters had already been, some stories had already been developed prior to this. And so I think that there was a, um, there was room to explore certain things. I think the one thing that I thought was really interesting is how they used this quarantine as a way to develop our characters and really tap into who we were. And thankfully we had already a season under our belts and we had already been in production. So I think we were in a flow for how each of these characters would be spending their quarantine, how they would feel in these uh, moments of solitude and reflecting on how to work and exist in this new environment. So uh, thankfully, Rob and Megan were able to convince Apple, and Apple, thank- thankfully, they were on board to help us do this with iPhones. So, literally, we would get drops of props. I got a box from uh, from a PA <laughs> filled with headphones, iPhones, cables. We got deliveries of Rube Goldberg machines. We got deliveries of Fernie pads, tape on our front porch. Each of them were sterilized. And our props department, everyone worked incredibly hard to make it happen. The visual effects coordinators built spectacular stuff. Everyone was working from home, but everyone was back working together just as if we were working, you know, two months ago. And then we put it together and then we used these iPhones inside. And with the help of our DP on Zoom calls and the help of our sound department on Zoom calls, they would help us figure out how to create the perfect shot the how to make some of the sound from our walls and uh, wood floors <laughs> diminish. <laughs> so I'm sure you guys can relate to that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, it was well. just a team effort. So we literally stick our iPhone in front of our laptops, in front of the Zoom call, so they could see all the settings on our iPhones. We would work on it together, and we would work on our sound settings. Before each take, we'd have to get a note card and put – this is take two, scene six, Brad, G. We'd have to clap for sound to start that. And it was just really fun because you really got to see how everything worked. And then at the same time, I was texting with the hair and makeup departments, doing my own makeup, which they had delivered for us, realizing like, wow, I'm not good at doing this. <laughs> uh, again, it was a great opportunity to realize how not good you are at certain things. But you got to grow and learn and appreciate all the integral departments that we have on our team. So I'm just grateful for that experience. And I think the episode itself is really special. The story is about this group of people who had been working together all of a sudden are continuing to work together from home. And how do we continue to push that forward? So I think it managed to hit on all those things. I think it was funny, had some really touching moments and the ending is um, even while filming it, I was on my feet, you know, getting chills down my back because I felt like Rocky too. Yeah, that's awesome. So I'd love to talk about your influences then. Um, what uh, kind of shows did you grow up with? Uh, what can you, what, did you have any favorite shows growing up? Growing up, I watched TV. You know, I think some of my earliest memories, my fondest memories are watching TV in my grandma's living room. Uh, we grew up on the south side of Chicago, and the TV was 
sort of that central place next to the door on the floor is a giant box TV. We didn't have cable, so we just had the main channels. And besides the local news, which we'd watch, we watched WGN. It's a lot of sports. We'd watch a lot of the Chicago Bulls, Bears, you know, White Sox, things like that. I'm a White Sox fan, so uh, you're, you're, that's great. I love it. So, yeah, we grew up not far from there, um, from Comiskey Park, actually. And yeah. the um, other thing we'd watch is reruns of TV shows late at night sometimes. And that, to me, was, was just really fun. So I think some of those shows were like The Cosby Show, were um, – I'm trying to think of like the earliest, earliest. And then like, you know, we were every once in a while sneaking downstairs, like me and my brother to watch shows like Saturday night live. And, um, I think we had discovered some VHS tapes of like police Academy movies and Monty Python and the search for the Holy grail, things like that. And those to me, I just remember watching them with my brother sitting in that living room, watching these movies, laughing, but not really understanding why I was laughing, just laughing with my brother and stuff. Sure. Yeah. And then, you know, other shows like I'd be watching like TJ hooker. I remember this, that weird show and then episodes of like all in the family and translating them for my grandma from um, English into Polish. And I always thought that was kind of fun trying to see what jokes actually translated languages, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah. Uh, yeah, I definitely watched a lot of like late night TV and then just a lot of like, you know, just anything that was uh, anything that was on repeats, Brady Bunch, you know, and and that kind of stuff. But then, like the first shows that I think that I really fell in love with were, were probably like Fresh Prince of Bel Air. That was probably like one of the first <laughs> SNL, Fresh Prince of Bel Air. That's when I really started to to love TV. I grew up uh, wanting to be Michael J. Fox. I think from Family Ties, from uh, uh, Back to the Future, um, probably even Teen Wolf. I, I, yeah, it was probably a good good one too. Were there any actors you thought were like, oh, I want to be like that guy? To be honest, not really. I did. I would. Yeah, I can't yeah. say that there was an actor that I was like, hey, this is the person that I want to be. I think in some ways, I, I, you know, I grew up mixed race, and I didn't have a lot of actors that I saw that like looked like me. So as a sure. kid, it wasn't like I had like ten people that I was like, oh, that's that's me, you know. And I think that was something I think I was conscious of it from an early age. But I think. Mm-hmm there were shows that I wanted to be on. I think that was the thing. So when I saw okay. Saturday Night Live and I remember seeing Eddie Murphy on Saturday Night Live, I think it was him doing like Mr. Rogers or Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood. Uh-huh. Those sort of things really spoke to me. Seeing, just seeing these performers being able to switch roles all the time. You know, seeing Chris yeah. Farley being able to uh, go from Matt Foley to interviewing Paul McCartney, all these to dancing Chippendales with Patrick Swayze. So those <laughs> those kind of shows spoke to me, I would say. It was the same thing with uh, shows like Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I just thought that was such a fun show and a fun world. And to be able to live in that environment, you know, uh, to work in that kind of environment always felt fun to me. So I would say those were the, some of the early shows that spoke to me. Interesting, yeah. In Living Color would would also be one of those where I just remember watching that and Jim Carrey, Fire Marshal, and yeah, you know all those all those awesome characters, the Wayans Brothers. I think it's sketch comedy for me was kind of where I saw 
potential in some ways, you know, maybe I didn't see myself in a specific actor, uh, but there were a lot of actors that I loved and admired and appreciated. And those, those were the shows where I thought like, that'd be a cool place for me to work. That'd be really fun. That'd be a great place to, to dream. So I would say those are some of my earliest influences. Yeah. When did you start thinking of becoming an actor then? I don't know if I knew I wanted to be an actor until probably college. I think early on, my parents, my grandma and my my mom made me dance. So I was a dancer for um, like community theater theater in, uh, in Chicago. And I loved performing. I wouldn't say I loved dancing in this group, but I did love performing and I liked the <laughs> rehearsal process. I liked the routine. I liked being able to come together as a group, work every Saturday and then put something together polished on a stage in front of a bunch of people in a smoky place called Dumpodhalan on the south side of Chicago. And hmm. but I just realized like I don't know if there's a future in Polish dance for me. So <laughs> <laughs> as I got into high school, I became uh like I would lead our school's pep rallies in high school and I was super into sports and I thought it'd be actually pretty cool to be like a sports broadcaster. There's a local sports broadcaster in Chicago named Mark Greco, And I thought that would be a cool job hmm. being on TV, watching sports. That is your job to watch sports. And yeah, so I think yeah. that was like the first career where I was like, I think that's what I want to do. So I think I headed to college with that in mind. Although my love of performance was always there, I just never realized how that was going to happen. So I didn't have any actors. I didn't know any actors in my family or any of my in my immediate circle. And then I got into college. Things started to change. I auditioned for a musical. I was in the show called Godspell right away. And I had an incredible theater instructor there named Phyllis Ravel who really pushed me. And she said to me, I think you can have a career in this. Oh, wow. She was the first one who actually said something to me, which – I couldn't believe she said, I think you could be on a show like Seinfeld. Hmm. And at the time, I actually had never seen Seinfeld. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, oh, cool. And then I cut to me running home and trying to find watch Seinfeld episodes. But uh, that to me was the first time where someone actually vocalized what I really wanted to do. And I realized, yeah, that's what I wanted to do. And I won a scholarship in honor of Chris Farley, who went to Marquette University. And I decided just to really start following his path, you know, so in some ways, um, that really helped me figure out, uh, what I needed to do to actually make a career out of comedy. And it gave me a map. So I went down to second city after college and I started studying, uh, sketch comedy and improvisation and writing at second city. And that's really where I dug in and was truly committed to taking comedy seriously. I talked to Jordan Black about his experience in the Groundlings. T tell me about your experience in Second City. Yeah, so that Second City was an amazing experience. I had signed up for classes with a friend of mine um, named Carissa Barreca, who's an incredible performer at Second City. And we decided to commit to the conservatory program and take it together. It was terrifying every week where you're on stage improvising writing material, creating characters, and failing 90% of the time. <laughs> but 10% yeah. of the time, if you're lucky, 5% of the time, I would say, actually, you come up with something that is so beautiful and random and spontaneous and honest out of nothing. And those moments drive you. They really do. 
And I remember we had worked on a scene together where we were both like wood nymphs, tree people in a forest. And it was so bizarre, and but just so wonderful. And it's those moments that really help you build confidence as a performer. And that's when I truly fell in love with ensemble comedy. Because I think that's my first love is really two-person comedy, ensemble comedy, creating something together in a group and seeing the magic of that is for me so beautiful and yeah so we would just start taking classes we took the conservatory program which is a year-long program where ultimately it leads to a show that you have completely written with your group and you put it up on stage for your friends and you force everyone to come watch your show (laughs) and um, please (laughs) please you tell your buddies who are who have real jobs uh, that, hey, please come and support my dream. And thankfully, I have amazing friends and family who continue to do that show after show. Some of the shows were good. Most of them were not. <laughs> and <laughs> But I always felt like I was moving forward in some way and building confidence. And I think that's what the Second City did for me. It really did help me get stage time, valuable stage time, where you're just with your friends on stage figuring out your voice. So that's uh, that's what it was. And after Second City... There was a showcase there, and at the time, NBC and the Second City had a partnership, and they invited me to perform in the showcase at the Second City, where I had to do, I think, five minutes of material, um, or a character monologue, and that was really wonderful, because I had been working with uh, my mentor at the time at Second City, and Still to this day, my um, probably my greatest comedic mentor, his name is Ranjit Sauri. He's a teacher, writer, and the first Indian American I'd seen um, doing comedy and sketch comedy at Second City. And cool. he really like just took me under his arm and was like, you know, very um, collaborative, always giving me advice. And he's also just incredibly funny. And we'd started performing together in this group called Stir Friday Night at the time, which was an, uh, it is an Asian American sketch comedy group that still performs. A lot of great performers, uh, in that group and have come out of that group. And that group, um, gave me a chance to start touring around colleges, around the country, writing my own material, also performing in other places and venues around Chicago, doing improv shows in Thai restaurants doing um you know 24-hour improv festivals performing at the chicago cultural center and um runjit at the time helped me figure out my material for the showcase which we did and that kind of led to me connecting with the nbc folks out in la for a showcase and eventually i convinced my my girlfriend at the time i believe to move to la with me and then we got married and eventually moved out to la so it's a long, long story, but uh, there was a lot of people there who helped me along yeah, the way, great. I should say. Yeah, that's really, really great. So you got your start then on West Wing and ER and Gilmore Girls and then uh, Greek, all pretty much within a pretty short amount of time. What was, uh, you know, how did that all work out? There's a lot of NBC yeah. shows there, and I think <laughs> a lot of that came out of the NBC showcase I was in. So as I moved to LA yeah. in 2005, and didn't really have any plan. My wife and I just moved here and she was brave enough and uh, had more confidence in me than I had in me. It's kind of the story of my life. I think a lot of people did uh, before I started really believing myself. And she um, 
so the only thing we had is I was in the showcase. I knew I was going to be in the showcase. And um, from that, I met my manager, met an agent, and met a number of casting directors. And one of the casting directors was of the West Wing. So they uh, gave me my first role. I auditioned, and it was one line. It was guest list for the Cleveland event. And you barely see my face. It was during one of these classic Sorkin walk and talks, and I was terrified. <laughs> I give a piece of paper to Brad Whitford, and I dive off screen. So that um, gave me a chance to be on screen for the first time, and it was terrifying. But uh, again, it was one of those moments where I believed, okay, this is actually possible. I had also met casting directors from the Gilmore Girls at that time, and um, Mara Casey, Jimmy Rudofsky, they gave me a opportunity to come audition for that show. And that led to, I think, my first like real role, which was on Gilmore Girls, and it was I think four or five episodes, a recurring role as a student at Yale, which was thrilling for my family because they could finally tell everyone they knew that their son was at Yale University. <laughs> and that uh, that was when I really started to feel like, okay, I'm starting to get this, understand the difference between doing bits for my friends and doing bits on camera. Hmm. That's awesome. Um, so uh, continuing along that thread prior to community, you did a TV movie or TV pilot with uh, Jordan Black and Joel McHale. Um, do you remember shooting the, uh, Giants of Radio? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So that uh, that came along that came from Jason Weiner, um, who's another you know, Chicago improv guy and uh, obviously an amazing director. And I'd received this script, which at the time was more of an outline, I believe, because it was improvised. So. It was this pilot, which was really fun, and I played the sound engineer for uh, Phil Hendry, and the outline of each scene was pretty specific, but the dialogue was incomplete because it was all filled in. And I think Jason um, and I had some mutual friends from the improv community, and he told me about this project, and he told me Jordan was involved, and he also told me Joel McHale was involved, which I was so excited about, and... It was, he also told me it was improvised, which was super scary, but I thought was such a fun challenge to do. I had done an improvised pilot right before that as well, which was um, called The Untitled Rob Roy Thomas Project. <laughs> and so I don't know if we ever came up with the title, but that was about a group of staffers at a uh, congressional district in Arizona who get moved to D.C., and that was completely improvised for Fox. The pilot didn't get picked up, but the experience was thrilling, hmm. super fun. I'd worked with um, one of my great friends to this day, Janet Varney. That's where I met her on that uh, experience. And that experience taught me it's possible to create something that's improvised. I think every day was just yeah. all over the place. Um, and but we still managed to create something, I think, that was really cool, you know. So Giants of Radio was a little different in terms of the structure was way more specific. We really knew kind of where we were going in each scene, but the moments in between the dialogue and how we got there were pretty loose. So I actually met Joel McHale on that set, and yeah. the pilot, I thought, came together incredibly well. Jason, I thought, for something that we shot in maybe two or three days, I don't even remember exactly how much time it was, it uh, it really came out and looked super polished, and I thought it had a lot of potential, and I believe CBS may have bought it. It didn't go anywhere, but again, it was one of those moments where I felt like, okay, I'm getting somewhere, and I'm meeting you know, 
people um, who, you know, were some of my heroes or, you know, some people that I really looked up to and now I'm working together with them and that felt really cool. And I brought up that story to actually to Joel when we had a chemistry read for a community. He didn't remember me, which I thought was hilarious. But I also told him like, even though he didn't remember me, he was so uh, collaborative and generous as a scene partner that uh, that stuck with me. And that was true in the community chemistry as well. So, yeah, yeah, you can feel it. You guys are great together. Um, so it's great. You know, your career's uh, growing, you're getting pilots. Um, so how did this time in these roles prepare you for community? I think it's like experience. I think a lot of it is just being on set and figuring out my voice and how I can fit in. And, and preparation wise, you know, I think for each of those experiences, uh, I had worked on a set, worked in different types of environments. Um, you know, I'd been on a few pilots by that time by community that didn't get picked up. So untitled Rob Roy Thomas project didn't get picked up by Fox, but that was a great experience. I was fully improvising on set all the time and really trying to build and create a character all the time. Uh, with Giants of Radio too, it was like I had a smaller role in it, so it was really trying to fill in the blanks of who this person was, and so that became really exciting for me is to dig into characters, you know. But they were all very short-term projects, right? And so by the time Community came around, I think in some ways I had already gone through a few experiences that taught me sort of how to exist on set and how to how to how to create, really, how to to add to a character, you know. The script for Community came in. It was the first time I'd read something that was that specific in terms of its point of view. And I knew immediately, I was like, I was, I will watch this show. It felt like a show that really spoke to me as Danny. And then the character of Abed, I thought, as well, was very relatable to me. You know, my agent said at the time, it was the only time, still to this day, where they said, this is the role you were meant to play. And I was terrified. Then I had gone on to audition maybe four times for that role. And in each of the auditions, I just felt like I was discovering and finding new things. And I was just talking about this with Joel, actually, and he mentioned this, which I, which I would agree was this moment where we had in our chemistry read, which was, I think, the third time I had gone in for uh, – but at the time, I think Joel was the only person cast – Joel and Chevy Chase, I should say. And okay. – I was going in to meet with the producers, to meet with Dan and the Russo brothers, and we had this chemistry read before my studio test, which is um, one of the final steps where you're just meeting for executives, right? And it's really cold, not funny room at all. So (laughs) the chemistry read, I was so looking forward to because it was a chance to actually read with an actor instead of just being on camera by yourself. And I think... Mm. For me, I don't ever feel super comfortable just being alone on tape without an actor to respond to. It just feels hard for me to really convey uh, anything. I really thrive off, you know, bouncing off another human, you know, and that's whether it's two-person comedy on a on a stage at Second City, you know, or in a in a room at uh, at Paramount, you know, so. When I walked in, you know, it was pretty awesome because I was working with Joel and I had decided for in this moment that I was going to try to shake his hand in a real weird way. And I put my hand super high and super close to his chest. And it was just like this awesome moment between us on camera when I was introducing myself as Abed. And 
I think it was just like this really great moment where we just kind of connected off each other and had this little like moment, this little riff, and it was just a specific character development. And it, things like that just started to happen there when I started working with Joel and and in that room. And I just started to really feel like, oh, this is, um, I'm starting really to see this world through this character's eyes. And I, the, I'll just never forget that moment. I think that's when things started to really click for me. So yeah, was, I would say that was a, a monumental moment for me because I just started to really also get my hopes up too, which um, was ter- terrible at night because I couldn't sleep. Yeah, that's a great uh, story with with you and Joel. What was it like meeting the rest of the group then? So a lot of the group I had met at the table read, but a couple of people okay. I didn't quite meet yet. So I met Gillian at the table read and that was really cool. And I told her this, like I had just watched a movie by Gillian um, that Gillian was in the week before that. I was invited to a screening of a movie and I said, sure, I'll go. And I thought it was going to be a comedy. It was not a comedy. (laughs) It was actually a really dark movie that uh, Gillian was in. I'm actually going to look it up right now because uh, I can't remember. But she plays in it. Like, I believe she plays a homeless youth in Los Angeles. Um, And again, I thought I was going to see this comedy. It's called Gardens of the Night. It was this drama. And she's incredible in it. And I just remember thinking like, wow, that is a dark movie. So then I saw her at the table read and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. This is not the person I would expect to see in this role. And she was so good. She's just, she's just a really honest, unpredictable, unpredictable actor. And she, I believe she received the role or she received word that she received the role at the table read. So I saw her crying and it was just this moment of such joy and relief and like our family we were discovering family at the time at this weird long table where i was meeting chevy chase for the first time who again as a kid from chicago growing up second city everyone knew him from vacation and you know caddyshack and he's just legendary right so to tell all my friends that i was going to be on this comedy show with Chevy Chase, I think they were all freaking out, you know, and so that was that was uh, that was one thing I was dealing with. To be with Joel again was super comforting because I just worked with him on Giants Radio, and then to see the relief and the excitement in Gillian's eyes while we were doing this table read it was just such a fulfilling, deep experience, right? And and then I think Allison and Donald were cast afterwards on tape, I believe. And, you know, we really didn't get to meet everyone in person until we started filming because we were still auditioning characters for the Dean. So um, the the true team didn't come together for the whole team didn't come together for a bit. But uh, that's how it felt. It felt really special and monumental meeting each person because everyone was so specific. I met Yvette in the parking lot. I'll never forget shaking her hand through my car window as she was going in to test and read. And again, it just felt like each of us were um, were coming together like this. You know, I don't know what it was. What, what we call the traveling Woolberries? Is that what we were referenced? <laughs> that works for me. Yeah, it was um, just a just a wonderful time. And my first experience being on a show at this level, being a series regular, and having a character that I connected with, and also 
a group of people who I admired in all kinds of ways that I was all of a sudden thrust into the mix with all these people where I felt like, oh, I have this imposter syndrome. I'm going to have to step up my game or at least pretend like I know what I'm doing for a long time. Yeah. Do you remember um, uh, shooting the pilot? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So shooting the pilot was really cool because we were outside and one thing you notice from community is we're outside for the first couple seasons and then we're not outside anymore. So I love being outside. I love sunlight. If you ask some of my castmates what Daniel was doing during breaks, during filming, a lot of times I was just outside of our set staring at the sun. My eyes were closed. But I get powered up from being outside. So I just remember being at LA City College filming that pilot. And one of my first scenes was this walk and talk where I'm orbiting Joel McHale. And we actually shot that scene twice. The first time, I just felt like I was blowing it maybe. I don't know. I don't know why. But we ended up shooting it in a different way the second time. They assured me it wasn't because of me, but I'm sure it was. And um, I remember the Russo brothers, Anthony really kind of helping me figure out our character point points of view. So the pilot was different than any other episode because we shot things in so many different ways. As the show went on, you know, our hours were long and uh, we would film for long times and that gave us the opportunity to truly bond on set. But the pilot was interesting because we would shoot scenes, lines, tonally it felt differently then we would eventually land into, right? I think they wanted to see all the different ways our characters could go. So uh, I have a lot of moments from the pilot experience that really stick out to me. And one of them specifically is the first time we're all around the table together in this Spanish study group. And each of us goes around the table. And I remember the Russo brothers going around and having each of us sort of improvise a little bit, but also really try our lines in different ways. And that was the first time where I remember feeling the power of the table and all the people around it watching just how funny and how grounded it was, but also how silly it mm-hmm. could be. Just the range of all the different actors around the table, I thought was – I could see the potential already. I didn't know if anybody mm-hmm. would watch the show. I didn't know if the pilot would be picked up. But one thing I believed in right away was that this was – this was the dream team. This was the right group of people for this show. And this show was hilarious to me. So that was really special just to watch each of us go around the table and you could kind of feel the energy coming near you like, Oh boy, here's my turn. (laughs) And it was really scary. And I just remember at one time someone ran in a cell phone and on it was a, uh, a monologue from the babysitters club. And all of a sudden I was doing this, some stuff from not be, uh, yeah, from, uh, from the breakfast club. Yeah. And, um, and I just remember thinking, what are we doing here? I was doing the lines from the show. And then all of a sudden I was watching a clip from the breakfast club and then screaming, no dad, what about you? What about you? <laughs> While everyone else is staring at me, wondering what we signed up for. <laughs> And that's really what started. I mean, each of us were really just struggling not to laugh. And it was very clear, too, that Dan Harmon had created such specific points of view for each of us that that was evident right away. It just became really, really fun 
to to come together around that table and just see what everybody brought to a specific scene. So that was that was definitely a big moment for me where I was like, oh wow, the power of uh, of the people's performances around this table. What a great show! I just loved watching everyone work and see how they came to uh to figure out their characters that was uh that was really special yeah did dan give you any directions specifically for abed no i mean i think the writing was so specific so i just took that and ran with it i think there were moments to me where i had questions and i would text dan about specific lines maybe but there wasn't a lot of direction i think they were it was more encouragement from dan and the russo brothers like I remember taking out my lip balm at one point, which was a Danny thing, and I was taking it out and using it right before a, for a, um, saying some some lines of dialogue. And Joe was like, "Yes, do that, do that again." And I think it was things like that where we started to piece it together. Things that felt like it was this, you know, synthesis of of Danny and Abed meeting and adding things onto it. Things that worked. It was more of like we started following things that worked. And really started feeling what didn't. So that's kind of what it was. And so I think um, every once in a while, Dan would have something very specific in mind with a line or a scene. And he would tell me. Um, But for the most part, it was a lot of taking a script, taking a scene, uh, watching uh, Breakfast Club, figuring out uh, how Abed relates to that uh, through this study group and just... And just going, you know, yeah, yeah, and going yeah. with it. So I always, I was really nervous about it. You know, I told some people that I never played a character like this, and I thought I wasn't sure if people were going to relate to Abed. I wasn't sure if I was, um, I, j- I just wasn't sure if I what I was doing was super honest, relatable. I just didn't know. And I just remember after season, after episode three, I had this conversation with one of our producers, Russ Krasnov. And I think I was just very, um, I don't know, frustrated. I was also scared, just very scared. This was my first time in this kind of role, in this kind of group, and probably lack of sleep. <laughs> We've been filming mm-hmm. many hours already. And I, I don't know if I believed in myself. And um, like I said, there wasn't a lot of people telling me what to do, which was scary, you know. And I think that was the first time where I realized that um, people believed in me and I had guidance on that set. And I could look around anytime there was a question in terms of a reference. Uh, you know, I hadn't seen all these shows. I wasn't a TV expert or pop culture expert like Dan. But I know I could always text Dan or text other people on set, talk to Joel, talk to Allison. There were always people there who had my back and who I could be like, hey, will you explain this reference to my dinner with Andre for me? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) that's the thing, too. I think people um, were very fortunate because the the amount of TV knowledge around that table – was uh it was an encyclopedia i mean between joel and dan and jim rash like there was we had we had all kinds of um of help there so but yeah i think early on there i think they they let me they let me discover abed which i'm internally grateful for because i just got a chance to play and really figure out my rhythm within this group, you know, and I think everyone had a different rhythm and finding that Abed rhythm, I think letting me find that I think was super 
helpful and I think ultimately just led to being real realer, more honest. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 they made it pretty difficult for you because uh, episode three is the intro to film. And you, it's a, a, I mean, a heart wrencher. And it's really putting Abed uh, front and center um, uh, in, in his quirks and his maybe diagnosis. Um, but uh, yeah, they, they made you work pretty hard pretty quickly. Yeah, and it was a tonal shift in our show. And I think one of the many. And I think that's what was so exciting about our show that it was unpredictable. Really, week to week, I could not wait for our table reads on Monday. We had table reads early on in the first few seasons. They, those kind of went away. <laughs> but uh, week to week, I could not wait to read this the next script because it truly was like you were on an episode of Lost or Game of Thrones and you didn't know if your character was going to die in terms of surprises. Like we, sure. didn't, we didn't know what was going to happen. I just knew I was going to be laughing out loud and I couldn't wait to see what else I was going to be doing as a character. In the first episode, I wasn't sure how Abed would exist in this show. And I think a lot of people may have thought that Abed might be this classic ensemble character to the side, which I, you know, grown used to. You know, I tell people I played five Sanjays. And I think it's it's a testament to Dan and the writers to constantly be exploring character growth with Abed. Uh, and I'm so grateful for that. And not letting a character like Abed be thrown to the side, really seeing his value, seeing his growth and seeing all the different ways he could be involved in the story, even when he's not like delivering a baby in the background. Abed is still there, <laughs> which I think is such a, a beautiful way of, of showing how all the characters are valuable. So I think in episode yeah. three was probably the first time where I'd seen that sign that we were going to be exploring all sides of Abed. And that was uh, surprising for me. It was hard. It was a place emotionally where I had to go to that was different. And it was also so exciting. It was really exciting. Yeah. Well, Iqbal does uh, an amazing job as your dad. So it was, it helps having a, a veteran like him. Oh yeah. I still yell falafel as a fallback. Every time I see him, <laughs> falafel as a fallback. <laughs> He's amazing. Thank you so much for going through, you know, getting us through up through um, the point of being on the show. And and I think Matt has a, a bunch of fan questions now that it'd be really fun to uh, to hear your thoughts. And uh, yeah. and I apologize in advance for some of them being over 10 years old. Uh, All right. Go for yeah. it, Matt. Okay, thanks. Um, I'll start with the oldest ones first. Uh, where, and this is from fans where we uh, pull from Twitter. Uh, where did the fantastic and iconic line "cool, cool, cool" come from? We know it's in the pilot, but do you do you remember a point where you realized that was going to be a big deal? I don't. I think a lot of things I don't remember being thinking that this is going to be our catchphrase or this is going to be our thing. Even our handshake that we worked on—I remember working on, the, on that with Joe Russo as we were trying to figure that out, Donald and I. I, I didn't think that that was going to be like a thing. Um, even singing. Um, <laughs> which is uh, Daybreak, Mike Laggins. Daybreak, yep. And that became my favorite ongoing bit, which started in a Halloween episode. But I didn't think that was going to be a thing. A lot of the things that when they first happened, I just never thought they were going to be um, something that we, we would go back to or that would catch on with fans. And again, that was really exciting. When the show started to catch on with fans and Dan was really paying attention to Twitter, it was 
just so cool to see what people were clicking with. Right. And that was one of the things. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers the question, but I don't remember exactly when it caught in or how that came about, but I think it was literally just a line in the script. We did it once and people liked it. Yeah. Just took off. Um, you've said before that your monologue and uh, my dinner with on Abed is uh, one of your hardest monologues. Uh, what made it difficult? Is just the length or, I think it was a few things. It was a combination of things. That sh- that episode, the My Dinner with Andre episode, Critical Film Studies, Pulp Fiction, whatever you want to call it, was so fun. Richard Ayoade directed it, and he is one of my heroes. And it was an episode for Abed to go to a new place. Very challenging in some ways. We didn't necessarily have a script all the time. And so some of the lines were coming in because I think Dan and the writers and Sona were figuring it out still. And... So we actually had teleprompters, I remember, for that episode. And part of it was because some of the monologues were changing. But another reason was that Abed was having this serious conversation, but also doing an homage to my dinner with Andre and celebrating his birthday. Meanwhile, he's also discovering new things about Joel McHale's character, Jeff Winger. And so there was all these layers to it. And... At the end of it, it ends with me telling a story about pooping my pants. So I think <laughs> it had to be played so real and so honest without laughing or really thinking about pooping my pants as a joke because it wasn't. So there was just a lot of comedic layers to it, but also really honest character moments there because I felt also this was season two, end of season two. We had gone on such a journey with Abed, and I thought it was a really – one of the most heartfelt moments between Abbott and Joel. If you go, if you see us in the pilot and then if you watch that episode, we've come a long way and the vulnerability on for both characters, that moment is, is really, it's, it's just really touching. So I think that's why it was challenging. It was, it wasn't a classic community episode. I would say it was departure in some ways. Um, yeah. And uh, I'll just never forget it. that, I've said this before, but that's my favorite episode of Community. For me, as a performer, you know, it might not be the funniest episode to watch, but I think for our show to be able to go to a place like that was something that I'll, I'll just never forget. Yeah, Chevy Chase is the gimp. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think we had three different characters playing the gimp in that episode. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, a, it's, it's a perfect episode. Um uh, what do you think happened to Hilda from digital estate planning? Oh, what do I think happened to Hilda? Wow. That's a- <laughs> Twitter is deep. Twitter is real deep. <laughs> yeah. I will say I had to watch that episode. I didn't have to. I chose to watch that episode with my children recently, and it was pretty funny explaining to them why I had all these baby abids everywhere and what I was trying to do. <laughs> And why I chose not to continue on the journey. I think they were very confused why Abed decided to stay back with Hilda. But I, th- I think my son got it. You know, we've been playing video games lately. I was like, he just wants to be in that game. He's found his match, you know. And so I, I don't know what happened to Hilda. I do know that when I, I think I went back for her and she's on that. Uh, thumb drive. She, yeah, she's on that thumb drive that I went back for. So she exists somewhere. She's probably just like, you know. <laughs> In a stack of backups or, um, you know, stack of thumb drives that Abbott has somewhere in a corner of his room next to, uh, you know, next to his um, 
well, his Blu-ray of uh, of Dark Knight Returns. That's cracked, by the way. <laughs> the Brooklyn. The Brooklyn yeah. Speaking of cracks, was Abed the ass crack bandit? Here's my theory on that. I think Annie is involved. My theory is she is involved somehow. But I also think she's not alone. I think multiple multiple people are involved. You know, I did have to learn how to roll a quarter across my knuckles for that episode. <laughs> so, uh, which was uh, perhaps a clue, perhaps not. I think multiple people were involved. Perhaps I was involved. I don't know for sure. I just think it's kind of a fun theory if all of us were in it. That is the most popular one right now, by the way. Is it? There's, there's multiple people, Annie included. Yeah. Okay. I, I, okay. Okay. Good. No, no, that's. I like that one. Um, even though I hate that question, I, I like it being in the air, but I, I like your answer to it. Um, what was your favorite Abed shirt? Because you had a lot of really good ones. Did you get to keep any? Oh, yeah. So it was pretty cool. So I always loved the T-shirt design. And there was actually a company in Chicago where I had some friends called Threadless. And um, I connected them with our wardrobe department. And uh, it was really fun. So we got to wear a lot of fan design shirts um, or a lot of, you know, a lot of design shirts from Threadless in the show, which was really cool. Wow. wow. Okay. And um, I'm trying to think of which was my favorite. I don't know. I think about this astronaut one a lot. This is like an astronaut one. Um, yeah, I feel like there was like melting astronauts, right? That's a... Yeah, it's been a while. That's what it was. It was like, yeah, melting astronauts shirt. That one, it's Abed Skeleton Astronaut T-shirt. Take a look at that one. I don't know. That one's kind of bizarre and weird, but I just I kind of dug it. Um, I guess that's the first one that came to mind, so I would say that one. Okay. No, um, we have a lot of uh, uh, comments on Twitter about community is how uh, people feel accepted. I mean, it's part of the, the mantra, you're already accepted. And uh, including people with autism, we see a lot of people that tweet and talk about that. Um, and, and you have to play somebody who has you know very limited facial expressions, so it kind of uh, cuts into this. Does, this. does this make them ultimately hard to play, and you, did you feel that weight? Yeah, you know, I never thought as Abed being emotionless because I think it's the opposite. I think Abed, Abed was filled with emotion, and I think it was always a man a way of how to to manage it, how to channel channel it. And as I approach a character, a lot of how I approach a character is is physically first. You know, I I like to to physicalize, it. and I think a lot of that was uh, me figuring out ways how to express emotion um, in a very subtle way or how to internalize it, you know? And so just existing in that world, you know? And I would say that was a, a challenge, but it was really wonderful because I do feel like it was a way, a new way of just seeing the world, you know? And I wanted to make sure that everything I was doing, everything I said, no matter what, my face was reading or no matter how I was in the scene just felt honest and felt like it was a response to what was happening. And I think, again, that's a testament to Dan Harmon and the specificity of their writing, you know, because it always felt like, you know, even for instance, like there's an episode where Brita walks in and drops a bunch of bagels on the ground, bagels. 
and I say 13 right, right away, bagel. <laughs> and it's, it's those little things like that where I always loved because it gave me a chance to really slide into to Abed's world, you know? And that to me, anytime that things were challenging on set, I always found solace in diving deeper into what Abed was looking at in this, in this story, how he was relating to the group. And, you know, TV was a great way for him to relate to, to those around him. So that's, that's how it was. You know, I think um, sometimes it was hard to keep a straight face for sure, because Ken Jong was doing something crazy or Donald was crying next to me, uh, you know, or Allison was doing weird gestures during our Dungeons and Dragons scene. You know, <laughs> that to me became this wonderful challenge to be this sort of blank canvas in some ways, um, but to also fully internalize this world uh, that I think Abed does and felt and feels. And uh, it was just an honor to play a character that um, – it just was so rich, so dynamic. It, he is a reoccurring in the fans' uh, uh, artwork, uh, and it's a reoccurring comment, really. A, a lot of people just constantly talking about how important he was and the, uh, how he's accepted by the group and how he responds to the group. So, oh, yeah. Uh, thank you. That was thank you. That was a good one. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll get out of the past questions. We'll get to something more current. Has somebody finally added Donald to the group chat? <laughs> yes, we have. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I will say no more, but yes, yep, yep. We were, the whole, the, the team is I, back. I think we had like 10 people ask that one right, right off the bat. Cause that was their first kind of response after watching the Q and A. Yeah. To be fair. I mean, we're all, we've all over the years, we've all been in contact with each other in, in different forms, sometimes more, sometimes less, you know? Uh, and also Donald's been really busy. I think we've all been very busy, but you know, it's uh I wouldn't say we need to look in too deep into that. Yeah, but right now we have been texting. Um, getting back together for that Zoom table read was just the best. And uh, yes, yeah, so we've uh, there is a group chat. Um, fear not, everyone. We're all excited <laughs> and uh, and happy um, exchanging bits via text. What was your favorite part of the table read? I mean, it's hard not to laugh at Pedro Pascal. <laughs> reading here's your can of sperm <laughs> for the first time and seeing it in his eyes that he has to say that that uh, I, I that is one of my favorite moments of maybe all time not just the table read <laughs> but i never thought i would watch the mandalorian say here's your can of sperm to me hmm. <laughs> which he did and want everyone to know that the mandalorian <laughs> gave me a can of sperm Congratulations. <laughs> uh, when you're when you're rewatching with these with uh, your kids, uh, do you have a favorite scene looking back at it now? Uh, now that you're watching with them, and is there a favorite that didn't make it? Ooh, uh, so a favorite scene with my kids, or a favorite scene that didn't make it? Both is that the uh, question? Uh, your choice. You know, it's 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 interesting because I think the show is. I think the wonderful thing about Community, which I'm rewatching it right now with my kids, and it's such a joy because I'm seeing it through their eyes. Which is different than when I watch it with like my college buddies um, or or my wife, you know. And so the Blanket Ford episode, for instance, takes on way more meaning with my children, you know. 
Actually, no, actually, that took on a lot of meeting with my college buddies, too, for different reasons. But <laughs> that uh, we just watched that episode, which was really, really fun to watch with the kids. And we actually built a blanket fort, not because of that episode, but the kids are doing a blanket fort right now for a school project. And so things like that are connecting with me in a new way, you know. Um, I think that the the tags are so fun to watch right now with my kids. That's been really fun, you know, watching me and uh, Donald run out of a restaurant um, after dining and dashing, you know, that that's really yeah. fun. And it's also a lesson. These are all teachable moments. I'm trying to explain to my kid, don't ever do yeah. that. Market don't price. That. Don't trust market price, you know. All right. Uh, if Abed were as the character were to watch Community right now, what would it be his favorite episode, do you think? I've been watching Community right now. Yeah, yeah. He's in, he's in quarantine. He's in quarantine. Well, Paintball. I would say season two, Paintball. Yeah, because I mean, season one, Paintball was maybe the most magical time I had on set. That was probably the most fun week of filming because I just couldn't believe we were just destroying a campus. And <laughs> Justin Lin was so so fun to work with because he just brought this whole next level of action movie to our comedy show. So I would say paintball season two though, because it's a two parter and it's a Western that goes into star Wars. So there's all these beautiful references for Abba to dive into. I love all the different moments in there cinematically too, where I believe I'm saving someone. And then also there's this, this like shot of flames behind me. It's like this like weird visual effect. <laughs> I think the whole intro, which is almost like a Rube Goldberg type of thing with Annie it's, it's and all the perfect. cans. It is just, it's such a perfect way to start an episode. And it's such a strange way to start an episode. I think if it's, if I was to tell somebody, Hey, there's a sitcom on NBC, watch, watch this episode and introduce them with that episode. They'd be like, what the, the hell are you talking about? This is, I don't understand. I don't understand how this is funny. Why, why are there all these cans? Why are you dressed like Clint Eastwood? And you're talking about eating a can of beans. Um, there's, there's the campus, like there's a campus paintball. Like, I don't think people would get it at all, which I love. I just love how far we went and how I just daring the writers were to go there. So, I would say Abed would be watching that episode because it's such an escape, the two-parter. And and the intro, there's people still today finding out that the intro actually means something, that the letters, the, the cards associated with the people actually has a value. And that's been really exciting. That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, it's touching. I mean, that episode, the same thing with Dungeons & Dragons, they have these... I mean, they're subversive in some way. There's like a dark element of like how we're all really struggling to get together, uh, you know, and yeah, I, I won't tell people what that means, but I think um, that's the beauty of our show. There was always something real happening. No matter how crazy we went, it was always, it always came from a, I think, a genuine place of character development. Yes. Um, so now we're through the the, the past and the present. Um what now is the like the dream thing you'd like to direct or uh, act in that you've been thinking about? You know, I don't know. I can't say I have just one dream. I think I'm interested in any kind of creative pursuit that helps me grow in a new way. So I did this uh, romantic comedy called Baby Splitters last year, which I'm excited for people to see. 
it was a chance for me to be a lead in this indie comedy, uh, romantic comedy with Emily Chang. It was directed by Sam Friedlander. So that's really cool. I'm excited for people to see that. I love Mythic Quest. Uh, that, for me, is a chance to play a new character on a show. And the ensemble is sick. Everyone is so good on that. <laughs> I get scenes where I get to uh, pretend, you know, air conditioners are robots with F. Murray Abraham. Again, <laughs> dreams coming true. So playing new characters, that to me is so exciting, you know. And uh, I'm excited to continue to do that, you know. I think... Abed was just a dream role and I'm forever grateful for that. So now I'm excited to try some new characters, see what else is out there. Any uh, other stories you want to share with us off the top of your head? Yeah, let me, I'll say one thing. I think, you know, one, I want to say thank you to all the fans. I want to say thank you guys for all the love that community has received. I think when we first started filming this show, I just wondered if anybody was going to relate to it. I always felt like we were doing these weird bits for ourselves in some ways and so i'll never forget the first time i realized we were actually really connecting with people other than my family we went to comic-con after season one and it was a shock to receive that much love and it truly was electric and to see all these people quoting our show and they continue to do so and to see people wearing inspector space time outfits to see people saying cool, 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 referencing our show, knowing lines of the show that I've forgotten, uh, speaks to the show, speaks to the fans that we have um, all, I guess, found a, found a home together. So in my life, I've said this, there's only been like three times where I felt that much energy in one place. One was being at the United Center during some Chicago Bulls games in the 1990s because I was a volunteer usher there. That was electric. Awesome. Never forget it. Two was the dance floor at my wedding. Electric. Never forget (laughs) it. Best time. I got yelled at by my babysitter for doing the worm on the ground in front of my wife. It was fantastic. (laughs) Never been prouder. Three was Comic-Con the first time because it was that same like level of energy I can't describe and just be filled in a room with so much love and excitement that to me is is speaks to the show and speaks to all of you who are supporting the show and i just really appreciate that and being part of that is uh very cool well we appreciate you and um i think i, I it would be uh difficult to to end the conversation without asking about the movie and how you feel about it you know everyone's asked a million times but uh you know just for one last time uh, what what are your what are your thoughts how are you feeling about uh, doing a movie so we've done six seasons in a podcast. The only thing left yep. is six seasons in a movie. It's the only <laughs> thing great. left. Uh, I would say that um, definitely excited to do it. I am ready to do it. Uh, and once um, once all the pieces come together, you know, I think, um, I mean, I think uh, people want it to happen. So yes, my answer is yes, I'm on board. I'm rooting for it, and I think we just have to keep making noise. Yep, I agree. Well, with that, Danny, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, Community fans can check out Mythic Quest on Apple TV. Uh, Check out the new quarantine episode. Um, Danny Pudi, thank you for being on Six Seasons and a Podcast. Thank you. Stay safe, everyone.